I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. This is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Welcome to Season 9 of the Travel Medicine Podcast. Nine seasons, Santosh. (laughs) That's almost, well, a significant number. <laughs> if I had a nickel for every season, I'd have We'd five have nickels. Almost two nickels. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Which is not a lot, but it's weird that it kept happening. <laughs> so um, that actually fits with this particular uh, particular instance. I like it. So let me ask you, Santosh, as we begin season nine, I'm going to start off with a riddle. And okay. What do sea snails, Egyptian mummies, uh-huh. oh, yes. and Victorian-era Japan all have in common? Oh, wow. Uh, sea snails, Victorian-era Japan, so early, very early 20th century, late 19th century, and mummies... Is this like a weird episode of SpongeBob SquarePants? Uh, are you asking if there's some sort of fluke in my riddle? <laughs> I'm just, uh, you know, maybe that you're uh, giving me the old runaround here. That you're 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 throwing me a red herring or potentially a uh, red snail. I wouldn't do that kind of schist to you. <laughs> Okay, you're mispronouncing all kinds of words, and I don't know. Do we have to start the recording over? What's the matter with you? <laughs> well, the answer, of course, to my riddle, Santosh, is mm. this week's topic, the beginning yes. of our season, and your favorite, Around the World yes. in 80 Plagues. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of these days, that's going to be like an actual, like a generated sound bite rather than you just <laughs> screaming into the microphone. <laughs> ah! Home <laughs> listeners. Have you missed us? No? Yeah, yeah. Too bad. We're back. If, um, you know, that's the news opening for those of you who are too young to remember that like, you know, the nightly news would have something like that on the radio or on the old TV. But uh, yeah, you can, do the news posture when Josh does that. And then when we do our journal club, you got to do your Kermit arms. For a uh, oral medium, there's a lot of interaction that we're really yeah. looking for. <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. We're proud of it. So what is this new infectious disease that we definitely maybe might have covered in like an earlier season, but I've forgotten about? 
Yeah, yeah. We've definitely talked about it a bunch here and there because it's not my very, very favorite, you know, uh, eukaryotic pathogen. That, of course, is toxoplasma, which I study. But it's so bizarre in its life cycle and how does it actually get to a human and start to infect you and that kind of a thing. It's just weird. So especially when we were talking about traveling to sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and South America, we've brought these up as causes of like, you know, fevers of unknown origin or abdominal pain or, you know, uh, little things swimming into your pee-pee. Ah, yes. (laughs) Another reason to never go swimming. This public service announcement has been brought to you by the Travel Medicine Podcast. Water trying to kill you since the dawn of mankind. It's not true. It's not true. It's only if you are a little bit irresponsible with where you frolic. And you know you you pee in the wrong place in freshwater while you're while you're immersed, you know. Schistosomiasis, yeah, only <laughs> infecting people who pee in the river. You <laughs> filthy animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're so, glad it's not everywhere because, dude, the number of people who get like getting in swimming pools and stuff. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I don't know. There could be swimming pools, I guess, in sub-Saharan Africa, but I don't imagine they'd stay stocked too long. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about the history of this disease before before we do the deep dive into pathology and where it is and all of those. Because schistosomiasis is an ancient disease, but due to its life cycle, it's considered one of the most important water-based diseases from a global public health perspective. Now, the cradle of schistosomes, that's right, they have their mm-hmm. own cradle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lies in the region of the African Great Lakes. So let's see, that's Superior, Erie, no, 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 Ontario. No, no. no. I, Africa I, I, has the Lake Michigan? Yeah. <laughs> You're on the wrong page. Flip to, flip to Africa. This is the you know, the kind of the area of the Great Rift Valley, right? There are two continental plates meeting in Africa. And as they, I can't remember, either come together or pull apart, there's this beautiful, lush, very, very fertile, water-filled jungle area that forms these beautiful waterfalls and rivers and lakes that goes uh, up and down the southern middle of Africa there. Right. So Lake Victoria, Lake Tanganyika, and Lake Malawi uh, are the African Great Lakes. And it's interestingly an area in which the parasites, their hosts, are both in an active state of evolution and where it may have ended up spreading to Egypt. And we're going to be talking a lot about Egypt. They had, I think by 1920, over 80% of the Egyptian population was infected with it, or at least of the male population. Yeah, yeah. It was actually called, because, you know, popular, you know, Judeo-Christian literature and everything, the plagues of Egypt. So this was called one of the great plagues of Egypt, the dreadful plagues of Egypt. And how do you know it's a plague of Egypt? Well, it goes all the way back to the time of the pharaohs. That's right. Remember, my riddle involved ancient Egypt yeah. and mummies. But uh, <laughs> there is a possible name for schistosomiasis that I'm going to bring up no matter how tenuous the connection because I just want to say it. Yeah. It is the uh, – in several Egyptian medical papyri like the Ebers papyrus from mm-hmm. as early as 1500 years B.C., describe a disease characterized by a discharge from the penis known as the ah ah disease or perhaps it's the ah 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 disease or maybe just the ah disease all right because there's no visual medium here the anglicization from whatever the Egyptian script was is literally three A's in a row where with dashes the, between them with dashes between them where the first and last A are longer 
and the middle one is shorter. So I think more than likely, actually, it's like ah 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 something like that. Ah 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 yeah. <laughs> is the sound you make when you're peeing in Egypt. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> well, only uh, you gotta only if you pee in the wrong place, like you know. Like the electric fence? (laughs) So, all right. They don't specifically state all the same symptoms of the disease, but here are some of the important ones. It was characterized by a discharge from the penis, which could also cover kidney stones or a lot of urinary infections. But it's interesting to note that to stop or treat the ah, 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 ah disease, (laughs) (laughs) The ancient Egyptians were encouraged to avoid polluted water, Mm -hmm. and those who had to make a living in water, such as fishermen, farmers, and others in regular contact, were advised to wear penile sheets made of linen, which presumably would give you a uh, river condom and stop them from swimming where they shouldn't (laughs) be swimming. Now, how do we know that this was a disease that occurred relatively often or at least with some degree of frequency in ancient Egypt. Well, this disease is mentioned 22 times in the medical papyri, suggesting that it came up often enough for people to have to be going back to Wikipedia entries to edit them. (laughs) Yeah, this is surprisingly prevalent in this cradle area and i know you're you're going to mention other civilizations as well josh but wherever these types of diseases showed up caused by this little um this little worm this trematode it was it kind of dominated a lot of discussion because of its morbidity so the problems that it would cause this one is the urogenital type. We're going to talk coming up about ones that invade your intestines and liver as well. So symptoms that resemble schistosomiasis, such as hematuria, which is the genital type, can mm-hmm. also be found in ancient Assyria, where the term was used musu, uh, used to identify any abnormal looking material coming from the urethra or discharge. Uh, It was, but that word musu was only applied to urine of unusual color or consistency. So it wasn't for any discharge in Assyria, only urinary. And Mm -hmm. this may even be mentioned in the Bible. Again, not a biblical scholar, so you're going to have to run with me on this. Okay. Okay. Uh, Joshua, not me, was ordered to kill a part of the prostitute Rahab and her family, and he cursed the city. And according to the Bible, it seems there was a very strong local belief that any community living in Jericho would produce fewer children than normal. Uh, Now, scientifically, this deficit or curse was believed to be associated with infected well water in Jericho. And this is in line with the fact that at least in the urogenital version of schistosomiasis, it may obstruct the fallopian tubes, end up causing scarring, and decrease the rate of successful pregnancies. Okay, so a lot like chlamydia could. Yeah. Sure. Um, So let's talk about the people who started discovering this in the way that we know. And I'm very excited because you know how sometimes we go back and talk about one of our heroes, Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The the famous Benjamin Duggar. Yes. Well, he's not in this episode, but somebody of that same noble line, an Italian (laughs) physician and botanist. So kind of an early version. (laughs) That's fantastic. Okay, cool. Italian physician and botanist from Republic of Venice, Prospero Alpini. (laughs) All right, gotcha. Was appointed to be the physician of essentially the Venetian ambassador to Cairo. And this was in the 1500s. So we've we've jumped up a bit from ancient Egypt. Sure. Um, Yeah, big, big gap, but that's okay. Essentially, it was just... This disease was recognized and just going on for a super long time in the middle. Well, specifically, it was recognized as going on for a super long time in Egypt, which is what Prospero noticed. He wrote 
Over the course of three years, from 1581 to 1584, de medicina egyptorium, on the medicine of Egyptians, and he noted a very high incidence of hematuria in Egypt, much higher than in surrounding countries or European ones, 200 years earlier before other Europeans started to comment on it. Oh, so good, good observation. Good looking out. The next time we really see it coming up, and here's where historically it starts getting fascinating. In 1798, mm-hmm. Renault, a French physician with Napoleon's campaign, also noticed the disease in Egypt. And he actually described, and you can understand at least the rationale when we talk about the symptoms of schistosomiasis in the urogenital tract. Right. He described Egypt as the only country where men menstruate. Oh, okay. So maybe ascribing something different. So not thinking of infection or disease, but almost a natural process of the people who live around here for one reason or another. He noted that in essentially almost every Egyptian man that they were coming across during these campaigns had at some point during the month urinated blood. He drew... He drew what he felt was a logical conclusion, uh, meaning who else urinates blood with regularity and doesn't die. And oh, urination is not what's actually happening, but no, for the no, purposes yeah. <laughs> of for the purposes of uh, Renault's intuition. Yes, so, yeah. and then he began to notice an obstinate hematuria affecting large numbers of the French troops stationed in Egypt, and particularly the cavalry. Where, you know, they would have to piss like racehorses, but sure. bloody. <laughs> sure. So frequent urgency to urinate, pain in the bladder, and blood in the urine. Uh, not the entire amount of urine, but the last drops excreted frequently were simply pure blood. And oh. when he began to examine these soldiers, he found inflamed membranes of the bladder compatible with a chronic infection. Okay, okay. It's uh, 1851. Back to Egypt, this time some German parasitologists, Theodore mm-hmm. Maximilian Bilhars. Uh, <laughs> I love that, these names. Now that may have some significance to you because I think an early name for this disease was Bilharziosis. Yes, uh, correct. And Carl Theodore Ernst first mm-hmm. discovered a schistosoma in 1851 during an autopsy performed at Kassir El Aini Hospital in Cairo. Um, So meaning they actually saw it microscopically. Yes. He described the emergence of embryos from eggs in the bladder Mm -hmm. and their passage in urine to fresh water as well as this, well, fluke. So (laughs) if we do some medical etymology, uh, it was named in 1858 based on what the worms looked like under the microscope. And it comes from the union of two Greek words. Schistos, that means split, and Mm -hmm. soma, that means body. So before we go any further, let's let's start there, Santosh. What do you mean split body? What do these worms look like? What is their life cycle in general before we talk about their effects on humans? Yeah, so first of all, it the the adult worms, okay. When you see them kind of free living before they get to any of the hosts, right? These are parasites. They have to live off of something. And when you see them kind of just migrating around in uh, either the bloodstream uh, or, you know, if you, if you pull them out, in this case, the, the worms that are actually like coming out of the egg and then they mature, a lot of the time they're these flat, flippy, slippery, little tiny microscopic worms. So these aren't the type of big worms that you can see, like you just put them in a jar. You you really do have to put them under some sort of magnification. But especially when they get to their adult form, and as a, for instance, in this case, you know, you're seeing it in the bladder, you actually see a male and a female together they're they're actually kind of bound together um mating (laughs) about to you know give uh uh, their eggs out but in that particular state okay when they're entwined together 
it's hard to tell whether it's one organism that's cut in half. So imagine taking a ribbon, you know, you just have a, a, a ribbon and you cut it lengthwise and you just leave it where it's almost cut, but not all the way. So they're kind of wrapped around and curled around each other. You you can't really tell if it's like that or if it's two things wrapped around each other. So I can imagine that it looked like it was a flatworm under a microscope that you would see. There were lots of other species of flatworms that were seen. Uh, flukes, that's under that big uh, group of flukes. But it looked split. It looked torn apart down the middle. And this is the life cycle that'll give off the eggs. The eggs will come out. And then the one part of the life cycle has to get into snails. Okay. And then the snails, <laughs> you know, house these schistosomes for a while. They replicate. They give off into the water another stage of the life cycle of the worm, the cercariae. And again, this life cycle, it's, it looks like a flat little wormy thing, but its tail is split. It looks like flukes at the end. And then that thing is the one that can either penetrate skin or get into your urethra or however, depending on the species, get into a human. And then the cycle starts again where the human incubates it and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, puts out eggs. For those of you taxonomy fanatics, uh, <laughs> it's, I believe, Schistosomia mansoni is carried by the Biomphalaria snail. Okay. The Bolinus snail carries S. hematobium and the Oncomelania for S. hyponicum. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. They are very particular about which snail they'll go into. Um, and then the human portion of the life cycle is important for it to turn into an adult fluke and then give off more eggs. So this is a dual host parasite. There are some parts of the life cycle that needs to go through the snail. There's some of it which is excreted, you know, free living, which are the eggs going into the snail and then another part of the life cycle that goes into the humans where they become full-fledged adults and then the humans are giving off more eggs <laughs> to the thing. So rents be going up everywhere and this yeah, yeah. Snail, and this snail has two homes is just born into this kind of privilege. I don't know, man. <laughs> it's not fair. Yeah, it gets to it gets to live in one home as a juvenile and then it gets to like get out and move into a big old human-sized mansion to become a full-fledged adult and have to a babies. deluxe apartment. Yeah. <laughs> in the in bladder or mesentery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or in your liver. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it actually was first discovered in the liver around the 1900s by uh, a Japanese professor, Fujiro Katsurada, who examined a cat and found 32 parasites, because cats are filthy, uh, <laughs> but including five pairs of schistosomes in the portal vein. Yeah. And he, he named it, so that is why one of the species carries the name S. haponicum, although it has been pretty much eradicated from Japan in the modern day. Um, although it used to be known as Katayama fever, right, Santosh? It was Katayama fever for a very, very long time. And I, I think uh, every now and again, when the patient has the full-blown disease with cystosoma, uh, you're saying haponicum. I, I think it's japonicum because it's Japan. When they get the full-blown uh, cough, and, you know, they've got uh, pulmonary symptoms because of how this thing is migrating and then abdominal pain, loose pain, you know, tender liver and the fever and everything. That whole syndrome is called as Katayama. I actually don't know what Katayama means. Um, it's not named after anybody. I think it actually describes the symptoms of the fever. Well, Yama is mountain and Kata would be uh, on the side. So oh, maybe side that's of where a mountain. Oh, God. oh, so it could be where it was discovered or where it was first described? I mean, maybe maybe mountain river runoff? 
Ah, uh, could be. Oh, that's a good. T- yeah, yeah. That's a that's a very very interesting uh, association. But yeah, the the big deal here about uh, what uh, Fujiro did is he was able to associate a schistosome with Katayama fever. So oh no, this, it just comes from the Katayama district of Japan, which is oh, <laughs> on the so, side of Mount Fuji. So it is mountainside. Go. I was correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, again, like the other physicians in the uh, you know 1500s and 1800s were describing a a syndrome that was unique to a region. This was also a syndrome a little bit unique to a particular region because this is where the schistosomes were flourishing the most. Uh, so it was described according to that. But Karayama fever was so called because it would describe all of the symptoms. It would be called schistosomiasis after uh, Fujita uh, Katsurada actually found out, okay, this is the reason why you're getting those symptoms so the, he linked together the parasite and the disease so these parasites essentially get into you start yes. making sweet sweet parasite <laughs> yes. love yes yes lay yes. a bunch of eggs you poop the eggs out the eggs then drill into the bodies of snails yes the snails release waves of forked tail individuals who then penetrate your skin and yes. swim up to the sexy time sweets in your <laughs> liver, heart, lungs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And it's the circle of yeah. life. <laughs> so the the variant on that is what we talked about at the very beginning, is instead of penetrating the skin, it'll follow the urine stream underwater. Um, and it'll it'll use that as a kind of way to say, oh, human this way. And instead of penetrating the skin, it'll go up the urethra and then into the bladder. Or in some cases, for a woman, will go through the genital tract um, and cause problems in the uterus and fallopian tubes. Uh, so yeah, that's just another, you know, a, a different way to sneak in. It it found a, it found a, an alternate route into Casa de U. Which is part of the reason you shouldn't go swimming, um, especially in areas <laughs> with poor sanitation. One yeah. of the most common ways it would be uh, acquired would be school-age children who live in developing areas of the world tend to spend time swimming or bathing in water that contain these infectious circaria, mm-hmm. uh, the, the form that's excreted by the snail. And the three main species each have very different regional areas. There's, there's I think, around six species of schistosoma. Yes, uh, But there's really, only, there's really only three that we see with any kind of regularity. And by we, I mean the physicians in those areas. It's not sure. something that <laughs> you come across too often in the United States. Yes, uh, correct. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, no. We'll this see. is that's that's a climate change, not a threat. It's a climate change. Yeah, absolutely. It's... So <laughs> this this bug definitely likes warm tropical kind of water. So it's not going to survive very well if there's high salinity, if it's really really cold. So the Great Lakes in Africa, Josh, unlike the Great Lakes, you know, near Michigan and Wisconsin and that kind of thing, are very, very warm and welcoming to this form of life. It, it doesn't freeze over in the wintertime. Brag about it, why don't you? <laughs> uh, so yeah. uh, S. hematobium is found in Africa and pockets of the Middle East. Yeah. Um, S. mansoni, nothing to do with Charles Manson, but it is pretty useful to remember it is found <laughs> primarily across sub-Saharan Africa and South America. Um, right. And of course, as Saponicum is found um, mostly in China, the Philippines and Sulawesi, it's, it's long been eliminated from Japan itself. Yeah. Yeah. Even though that's where it was first kind of discovered, it was probably moved about by humans or if snails came along, you know, when, you know, we were carrying things in water and, you know, found nice, beautiful tropical waters all along Oceania and Southeast Asia. So made a new home over there. <laughs> now, interestingly, Santosh, modern technology and agricultural techniques 
made this disease far worse than it ever was before. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Talk about it. So I don't know a whole lot about different irrigation techniques, but I guess the most primitive form is just basin irrigation. You collect a lot of water in some shallow area and then build channels to get it to where you need it to be. Right. Uh, so in the Nile, you'd have natural Nile flood and cultivating one crop a year. And I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In areas that were using this basin-style irrigation in Egypt, the prevalence of schistosomiasis was about 5% in the population. Okay. But with the development of agriculture and perennial irrigation, meaning you have water coming in all the time, not just when the Nile floods. So upgrading to this modern type of irrigation around 1821, the prevalence in the population rose to 60%. Whoa. So under five to over 60, (laughs) just because you're bringing in all this, you know, fresh water or non-salinated, non-salted water. Yep. Mm-hmm. In which these tiny little things can survive. And even if you manage to hide from them, you're bringing in the snails that also serve as hosts. Yeah. <laughs> so you're basically, because these are irrigation channels, right? So instead of manually hauling water around, you just cut the channels with a, you know, plow or whatever it is so that the river can run off into your field. And, you know, the, it's not like they're trying to get to you. <laughs> they're just aren't gonna, they? They're no. They're just going to go with the flow. That's all it is. Is so water's flowing that way, and so the the snails are going to go that way. The free living, you know, cercaria are going to go that way, and the eggs which are floating around in the water trying to find a a snail host are all going to. <laughs> Kind of go that way. So as you spread out the original reservoir, the schistosomes are going to come along <laughs> for the ride. <laughs> Letting the snails go by, water flowing underground with the cercaria into your genitals once in a lifetime. Well, let's talk about how you diagnose this. Before we had these molecular techniques. Um, We talked about how it was first seen under a microscope. And one of the earliest papers on this uh, by, you know, of course, a British person, because if it wasn't discovered by the British, it doesn't count. (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) I'll say they definitely did help propagate along a lot of this information. Like, you know, wherever they went, Yeah, okay, they invaded and it was pretty horrible stuff, but they brought their paperwork along. (laughs) Yes, thank goodness they brought bureaucracy. Yeah, (laughs) what would we have done? In 1910, Mark Armand Ruffer, professor of bacteriology and president of Maritime and Quarantine Council of Alexandria, Egypt, Mm -hmm. reported a study on Egyptian mummies of the 20th dynasty. And specifically, he noted that the kidneys of two of the mummies had microscopic sections, a large number of calcified eggs of what he identified as, remember those two original Germans, those German uh parasitologists from the 1850s? Yeah, yeah. Well, the disease became known as Bilharzia, as they were the first to describe it. Oh, cool. 
And Dr. Ruffer, or Professor Ruffer, noted calcified eggs of Bilharzia among several mummies. Now, this paper is considered a milestone, not because it told us all these other things new about the disease, but it began the entire sub-discipline of paleoparasitology. I love this. <laughs> including the Manchester Egyptian Mummy Project. <laughs> oh, that sounds... I mean, it's basically they're studying mummies in Manchester, England, but it sounds so much more grandiose than that, doesn't it? I think of like just one mummy that really loves soccer. <laughs> but in fact, this was the beginning of studying what sort of diseases and bacteria were in mummies and the techniques for dissecting them safely or dissecting them such as to preserve as much of the body as possible uh, and has now led in the modern day to things like simply doing x-rays or cat scans of mummies without even having to take them out of their sarcophagi, much less their bandages. Cool. Yes. Yeah. So we learned a ton. We really did. It was a very destructive process, but it was very, very helpful to learn tissue sectioning on these ancient cadavers. Uh, taught us a lot. And it's something we still do today, although with much less frequency. Um, a study from 1992 used some similar techniques in samples of desiccated skin and brain from 23 mummies from Sudan, or the region formerly known as Nubia. Okay. And about 16 of the 23 mummies, so 65% of those mummies, had detectable schistosomiasis eggs. Oh, and that's the same 60% that you were talking about when they began irrigation. Uh, or, or, you know, uh, regular perennial irrigation, like what you were talking about. So again, as as you're developing more modern techniques of civilization, no, the one I was talking about that had it jump in the 1820s was, you know, uh, even more modern. But these are from mummies from Sudan. And even then, it was a very high incidence. We don't know about prevalence, but at least in people who were being mummified, yeah. on average, every other one had this infection. Well, <laughs> Yeah, you could flip a coin and say... So oh, yes. <laughs> how do you diagnose this disease in the modern day? Uh, let's say, you know, you've been out in well, any body of water in Egypt other than the Dead Sea. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> or freshwater rivers uh, that are in the Caribbean, which actually has a very low incidence of infection. You're more likely to pick it up in sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, or parts of South America, rural, yeah. and rural Asia. In, in the New World, uh, meaning the, the West, so there's a little bit along the Caribbean, but you, you'd have to go to the southern edge of the Caribbean, so Belize, Uruguay, I think, and then the northern edge of Brazil. But if you start to get a little too far south, and to the wrong waters and stuff, now the parasite really can't thrive very well. So it, it is quite limited in South America. Like Africa, when you're looking at uh, everything below the Sahara, schistosomiasis lights up like a Christmas tree. There's so much there. Usually the way you detect an infection for this is uh, checking your stool for eggs. You do stool studies. Yeah, yeah. And they're quite characteristic. You do have to have a good practiced eye. So the folks who look at stool for a living um, to identify ova and parasites. Science. <laughs> they have to be very, very practiced at seeing sample after sample after sample and using stains to say, oh, that looks like an egg versus, you know, a particle or a fiber or a plant or something like that. It, it's tough to see if you've never tried it before. But those people who are practiced can go, oh, boop, there's the egg. Now, if you don't know your shit cold, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can also do a blood test to detect certain kinds of cells that appear when you have parasites known as eosinophils. Yeah. And we always think of eosinophils as the allergy cell, right? Like the one that gives us 
the sneezes and everything else when you have pollen or eczema and all this horrible stuff. But back in the days before there were allergies and everything, are eosinophils and histamine and IgE, immunoglobulin E, were all evolved because we have co-evolved with these types of parasites and worms for so long that we have an entire subset of our immune system dedicated to fighting worms. But you can detect it usually with a stool sample or a blood test and, of course, a good history. You know, you want to know, has somebody been to a part of the world where this disease exists? Have they been swimming or fishing or doing anything that has them for a prolonged period in the water? Because this Mm -hmm. isn't like the strongyloides worm that you're walking along the sand and will burrow in. This isn't like some of the others that can get in through the bite of flies or rodents. This is you need to be in the water in order to acquire it. And yeah. it's also not going to happen in chlorinated water. You're really looking in fresh water in in the wild. Mm-hmm. So uh, I decided to go swimming in this pond. I used to, you know, I decided to go uh, fishing uh, over here in this lake. And we, you know, basically just hitched up our shorts and waded out into the water kind of a thing and stood out there for, you know, one to two hours, something like that. And yeah, the uh, the circuitry will penetrate your skin. They'll they'll have time in order to do that if you do that, or if you are in the area, the part of the world where Schistosoma hematobium is, then what'll happen over there is you spent long enough of an amount of time in that freshwater lake or river or pond or whatever, and you peed while your penis was immersed. Um, in there and it doesn't have to be like you know it, it's short little like burst of pee <laughs> this is really staying in the water a long time and relieving yourself and uh yeah that's how you'll get that so what are the symptoms of schistosomiasis oh i thought you'd never ask <laughs> well i mean we are we are at least halfway Nope, three quarters yeah, yeah. of the way into this episode i figured it had to come up at some it point to come up. <laughs> so There is one form that we really haven't talked about, which is something called swimmer's itch, (laughs) swimmer's itch, Josh. And so there is a type of uh, schistosomiasis, which is by far and away the most common, where they just penetrate into your skin. They don't go any further. And you get these horrible, itchy bumps all over after getting out of the water. And those are the cercaria that are actually penetrating into the skin. Some people have a harsh allergic reaction to these with a lot of eosinophils. And, you know, it makes it look like hives and scratch. And some people don't. So that's just like the penetration. That's the very, very initial one. Um, Katayama fever. uh, So seen in Japan, but also in, you know, swaths of Africa. This one can look like so many other diseases, Josh. So you've got high fever, chills, headaches, nothing to really separate this disease from anything else. But if your eosinophils and your histamine are working, then you might get hives. Uh, In the medical term, we call it urticaria. But, you know, anybody who's ever had an allergic reaction on their skin where they have that serpiginous, raised, itchy, itchy rash called hives they can have that and then the the urinary one is exactly like how we've described where uh, it's like male menstruation they they uh, pee blood and it can be very painful and it can look like a lot of other urinary tract infections um Genital schistosomiasis, we talked about, cervical irritation, ulceration, vaginal bleeding. And if it's chronic and not picked up because they're asymptomatic, you can get scarring, which can lead to ectopic pregnancies in the fallopian tubes. Um, the most common by far around the world is going to be intestinal and hepatosplenic disease. So schistosoma japonicum and mansoni will go ahead and and penetrate and they will give you then crampy abdominal pain. Um, You can get polyps and stuff in the intestines, which will potentially cause obstruction. 
Um, but the liver disease is actually quite nonspecific. It can look like a lot of gastroenteritis type of symptoms. So before the liver even gets big and full with all of these, uh, you know, eggs and adult worms and everything else like that, you'll just have loss of appetite, abdominal pain, fevers. And then if it sticks around long enough, the liver will get big, the spleen will get big. And then if it clogs the liver's, you know, functions, if, if you get a really, really high worm burden, um, what you'll start to get is either jaundice because you're disrupting the, you know, the liver's function over there. Or remember how you said, Josh, there were some that crawled into the portal vein. The portal vein is the one that feeds from your liver and gets back into your heart so that the processed food that goes through your liver, you know, gets back into your circulation. But if that clogs up, there are other veins around it, which start to fill up. And so you get varicose veins essentially in your abdomen. So like esophageal varices um, and the same type of varicose veins that you would see in like cirrhosis of the liver, for instance, uh, over the abdomen. So that's the typical um, chronic long-term thing that we see. Um, and unfortunately, as the worms migrate around, they can rarely, more rarely, get into your lungs. You start coughing and having those problems uh, into the central nervous system. And very, very interestingly, Josh, a lot of these worms carry as part of their own microbiome, salmonella. So you could have a silent infection going on where you, you don't have a high worm burden, but you keep getting septic or have urinary tract infections with salmonella. Very, very bizarre. And if you see that as a doctor, you should say, oh, maybe this person has schistosomiasis. You ask them where they've traveled. They said, oh, yeah, I've been to, you know, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo or Kenya any place in South Central Africa, yep, I made the diagnosis. This person has schistosomiasis. Are there long, so we talked about some of the long-term effects could be ectopic pregnancies, varicose veins. Is this a disease that can kill you if left untreated? And we're going to talk about treatment in a moment. But is this the kind of disease that can kill you or cause disfiguring or anything beyond what we've already mentioned uh, with increased risk of ectopic pregnancies or not quite sterility, but a much higher difficulty in becoming pregnant. Yeah, absolutely. So the urinary form, it's not just peeing blood. The bladder, like you said, does get thickened and irritated. And you actually can get just destruction of the bladder over time. And that, of course, you're urine starts backing up into your kidneys. And so those folks, before we understood the treatment, those kind of things, they could get septic from chronic or acute urinary tract infections. The genital ones, uh, just like you said, in women, they could get an ectopic pregnancy, it could rupture, they could die. Uh, but otherwise, you could have in men as well, invasion into the prostate, and the seminal vesicles, likewise causing sterility and problems with chronic infections um, actually in the scrotum and prostate. The scariest ones are when they get into the liver and into the spleen, so hepatosplenic disease. And this, especially in our children, the worm burden can get high very quickly because their immune systems are not as strong as adult men and women. So here, you can overwhelm the liver's ability to function, and you can actually cause bad enough jaundice where a, a, a kid can get, you know, encephalopathic from all of the, the bilirubin and the toxins that the liver is no longer processing and they can die. Likewise, they can clog up that portal vein. And now all of a sudden, you have these bad varices, these filled up veins, which try to supply, you know, back to your heart, but they're, they're stretched and they're very fragile. Those can rupture and a kid can die very suddenly. Likewise, the spleen can rupture and a person can die very suddenly. 
if they're immunocompromised, so unfortunately, Josh, in this era of HIV, where you have bad immune compromise, then in that case, the worms can just really take over your whole body and replicate to the point where they get to vital organs like your lungs, your heart, your brain and cause encephalitis. Um, or one of those instances of salmonella can overwhelm you with sepsis and you could die that way. So it it's more commonly in adults disfiguring and causes a lot of um, I would say disability, but if you're immunocompromised, if you're young, if you're unlucky and you have a very high worm burden, then it can kill you. Now, interestingly, the worms themselves are not what cause the symptoms. And a lot of infections are asymptomatic, as you mentioned, you know, while you can have all these terrible effects, Many people are walking around carrying the worms without even being aware of it. Yep. Just pooping out eggs. <laughs> and the reason is the symptoms are caused by the body's reaction to the eggs themselves. So you may, when the worm first burrows in, you may see a very slight hypersensitivity reaction in the area the cercaria uh, penetrated. Yeah, that's the itch. Uh-huh. Um weeks after that original infection, you could get a general hypersensitivity or allergic reaction, uh, especially by S. mansoni or S. japonicum, like fever, cough, abdominal pain, uh, and eosinophilia, which you're not going to walk around knowing you have. That requires a blood test. A, yeah, you need a blood test, yeah. <laughs> and then you'll get symptoms. So it is something that, again, taking a good history or or really talking to your medical professional about where you've been and what you've noticed and when is going to be key in making this diagnosis or giving the suspicion. But let's say you do have it. How do you treat it? <laughs> yeah, this was just an amazing breakthrough when we were able to get a hold of an antiparasitic that could treat it. Because Josh, like you talked about eradication in Japan, we could not only take care of individual cases, but just as you were saying, for a lot of people, they're just carrying the adult worms around and just regularly pooping out the eggs, which is a perfect trade-off for this parasite. It's not hurting the host, but the host is still helping it propagate. So now what you have is you've got to get treatment not only to individuals who are sick, but you really want to treat a population in order to eradicate the thing from the reservoir, like the actual, uh, you know, the humans who are carrying it and maybe the water supply, you know, so that it's not circulating through there as well. So... This was discovered, uh, Prazi Quantel, in the 1970s. And this is an antiparasitic. It'll only work on the replicating forms, right? So the ones that are metabolically active, it's not going to work on latent forms like the eggs. So you do have to uh, maybe give it in cycles. But a lot like how we deworm folks, so uh, places where there's strongyloides, circularis, or ascaris, these other roundworms, which can cause disability through malnutrition and problems like that, you can actually take a medication like this and give it to a population of folks and teach them then good water uh sanitation and hygiene, and you can eradicate this out of an area. So this was one of the, you know, like curing a, a devastating plague of Egypt. Like this was this level of cure. It was absolutely amazing when it was discovered. Yeah. So, you know, stop defecating and urinating in the river. That's, that's always a <laughs> yeah. good start. You would think that dosing, you know, a whole population would be very difficult to do in order to successfully clear this, but praziquantel is really only taken for one or two days to treat the infection. It's it's meant to kind of paralyze the worm, or and again, as you mentioned, Santosh, it only treats the worm, not the eggs. Right. So you have to mm -hmm. wait for the worms to have grown a bit. So treatment does often happen in cycles, and then steroids are used to treat the inflammatory effects or the allergic uh, reactions itself. 
Yeah, so the the steroids really are to just control the symptoms, but it's so cool. Just like we can use albendazole or mebendazole in single doses like that in cycles to get rid of roundworm, we can use praziquantel for flukes and trematodes. To you, you go in and you just say, "All right, all I need is two doses for every single human being here, and I need maybe two or three cycles of this, so that." Basically, uh, for, uh, okay, say I have, you know, hepatic schistosomiasis. I've got my little adult worms partying in my liver, making eggs, and I, I'm pooping them out. So I take round number one, and all of the living adults that are partying in my liver go, Hleh! and they get paralyzed. They don't die. But now my immune system can wrap them up and toss them out and kill them. And, but there's still some eggs laying around the ones that I haven't pooped out. So then those eggs hatch and they start to party. And so before they can lay too many eggs, I take my next dose. So that's in a, a couple of weeks and boom, I have ended the cycle as long as I don't go back into that dirty, dirty water <laughs> until it's so, been cleaned. So I guess if there's one takeaway from this episode, it's stop going swimming. No, 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 stop. <laughs> the takeaway is proper water control, sanitation, usage, and when needed, medication cycles for eradication. <laughs> You'd go uh, enjoy yourselves out there, folks. Come avoid, on. Avoid paddling, swimming, yeah. and washing in fresh water uh, in these areas. Only in the only swim in the sea or chlorinated pools. Which mm -hmm. brings up their own host of issues. We're talking about just to avoid schistosomes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, and and for the places where there's hematobium, schistosoma yeah. hematobium, and this is a good general rule. Just don't piss in the water, please. Also, I know, you know, <laughs> boil or filter your water before drinking. The parasites can actually burrow into your lips or mouth if you drink contaminated water chew yes. on that for a while or yeah. don't <laughs> or don't that's a very good general rule not just for schistosomes but for all the other nematodal eggs that might be in there bacteria amoeba all those kind of things that can get you sick if you get your water up nice to like 212 degrees um for at least five minutes you're gonna wipe them all out and for the TikTok crowd, quickly drying yourself with a towel after getting out of potentially contaminated water is not a reliable way of preventing infection. <laughs> oh, please don't tell me that that... The idea is that because you get these infections after being in infected water for a prolonged time, if you just jump in to, you know, grab something and towel yourself off right quick, poof. You uh, <laughs> you no mas bebes the worms, and and I simply want to say it does not matter how fast you towel yourself off. Simply being in the water uh, is enough to yeah. be exposed. So that's it for <laughs> this week. We had, to we had to say that I'm a little embarrassed at our human species that we had to <laughs> no no look 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 we've had tide pods we've had bleach i'm just saying toweling yourself off while important is not going to prevent any diseases yes so right. that's it for this week as always we'd love to hear your comments questions and feedback you may have noticed commercials on this episode or if you signed up to support us at five dollars a month um you may not if there were commercials tell us what you thought I yeah. don't actually know which ones are airing. So <laughs> we're, we're hoping that we're not going to be selling you any like pseudoscientific supplements or anything on this channel. Um, <laughs> we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. Uh, support us like review subscribe wherever your podcasts are downloaded and until next time as always wash your hands get your flu shots because we are coming up on flu season oh yes yeah and and uh covid boosters if get you your need. covid boosters if you're in that population that needs it get your monkey pox shot uh <laughs>
Watch for pandemic updates. Tune in every week for a brand new, most of the time, episode on, <laughs> on medical stories, histories, and interviews. And enjoy and join us for Season 9 of Travel Medicine Podcast. Until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.